Welcome to the Iconic Women by Icon Group podcast. In this podcast series, our talented women and guests share their inspiring stories of chasing opportunities, overcoming challenges, and living an iconic life. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Anne, on our Iconic Women podcast. It's really lovely to have you here with us today. That's a pleasure. Majority of people in Icon probably know uh, who you are, Anne, but if you can tell us a bit about your role here and what you do. I'm the CEO for Icon Cancer Care Australia. Within Icon Cancer Care Australia, we have all of the medical oncology and radiation oncology day hospitals and centres. Reporting to me I have a number of group managers and then I also who support the site managers and then I also have a number of services that actually support the sites including physics and patient accounts and quality and nursing education that all actually report through to me. And in your role what does your everyday look like? Well, there are there are scheduled activities um, which are generally around a sort of process of reporting our activity for the month. Mm-hmm. There are a number of meetings that support how we and we forecast that, and it is a bit of a cycle, a bit of a monthly cycle. So we forecast how it is that we're going to uh, go for the month. We identify where we've got issues. I do that with the state managers. They're pretty much responsible for their own portfolio, but we will work through any issues that they've actually got. I maintain the relationships with the um, the salaried radiation oncologist, so I'm often dealing with them. I do the recruitment for the radiation oncologist in conjunction with Marcel Nezel, who's the Director of Radiation Oncology. We've always got something on the go in that space. And then it's really dealing with um, any issues that actually uh, come up of a, a clinical governance nature, which I deal with with Ian Irving and Marcel, and also anything that we're really doing in the quality space. Yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of items to juggle there. Mm. How do you manage all of that in your time? Well, to a certain extent, you some things just take over your day and have to be dealt with straight away. But I do um, very much try to keep in contact with people and have a regular time to catch up with them. Um, and that might be weekly or fortnightly, depending on who they are. I can always be contacted. It doesn't matter when it actually is or whether it's scheduled or not. I always ask to be contacted mm-hmm. um, if something actually goes wrong. And other than that, just try to make sure that the time that you've actually got scheduled to have with people, whether it's meetings or one-on-ones, is, is meaningful. Yeah. And that you sort of, you, you get to the point of what actually needs to be done and, and not try and make decisions yeah. in as quick a period of time yeah. as you can. And similarly then, what is the most difficult part of your job? Actually, I don't find a lot of it really difficult. There are some challenging things that we have going on, Mm. but I work with a really great group of people. Mm. It's a dynamic organisation, so it's not difficult to get things done. I often worry that I don't get to recognise people as much as I should, and so sometimes it's just... The volume feels a little overwhelming, Mm. but then you push through it and you get to the other end and you think, oh, actually, I got that done. Yeah. Mm. When you're here, you never seem flustered at all. I'm like, wow. Yes. Well, that's (laughs) actually, that's a mask that I've managed to (laughs) acquire over the years. (laughs) Yeah. So let's go back all the way to beginning, little Anne. Um, What did you want to be when you were growing up? Um, I had absolutely no idea. I... um, 
I always envisage myself wearing a navy skirt and uh, and a white shirt, crisp white shirt, and high shoe, high heel shoes, blue. They were going to be navy shoes. Didn't know what I was going to do when I was wearing them, but um, I just had this vision that that was what I would actually look like. So I didn't really have any career aspirations at all yeah. when I was actually just wanted at the school. power suit. Just wanted the suit. <laughs> yeah, just wanted the look, and uh, yeah. That was about it. Maybe I had a briefcase too. Yeah. Mm. So then how did you fall into this? Tell me a bit about your career path. On that basis then, I got to the end of year 12 and I thought, and I was a, I was a pretty good student, so I put my preferences down and they were essentially based on my doing a health course in health information management, which my cousin had done. Mm. And I chose that because it was only two years long. Nice. And that meant... I was going to be out there and I was going to be in the power suit as quickly as possible. But I didn't actually really want to do it. And so I sat the Commonwealth Bank exam. So this is, you know, eons ago, back with the dinosaurs before cars. Um, so I sat the Commonwealth Bank exam and got a job in the Commonwealth Bank in Warrnambool, where I grew up. And I was there for about four weeks and I thought to myself, oh, I can't do this. This is driving me completely insane. I am so bored. And so I went to my mum and dad because we didn't have a lot of money and it always worried me about the fact that I was going to have to go to, to uni in Melbourne. How are we going to pay for all of that? And I'd done all my research so I worked out what I would get in terms of tertiary allowance and, you know, but it still worried me. Um, so I went to my mum and dad and said, oh, I can't do this. Anyway, I got my first preference, which was to do the two-year health information management course. And so I just decided, yes, I had to go off and do it. So I moved to Melbourne and I moved in with my cousin I think I cried myself to sleep every night for the first six weeks. But then I just threw myself into, into actually doing that course. Yeah, that was how I got my undergraduate qualification. Mm -hmm. So my first job was uh, at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as a junior health information manager. But within the first year that I was there, everybody senior to me resigned because it was a terrible year. There was a massive um, HEF, Health Hospital Employees Federation, I think it stood for, dispute at the hospital. Mm -hmm. It was awful. But I did get to the end of that and I thought, well, if I can deal with that year. I was actually acting in charge by the end of the year. <laughs> that was because no one else was there. It had nothing to do with my great performance. But I thought if I can get to the end of this year and get through all of that, I can get through anything. Yeah. I then went through a number of jobs um, within the public sector. I ended up as patient services manager at Panch. Then I worked for a lady there by the name of Vita Pepe. Vita then went off and worked in the private sector. She went to work for HealthScope. I stayed for a little bit longer with, it was then Northwestern, then Northeast, Northeastern Health, then Northwestern Health, then Melbourne Health. And then she offered me a role to go and work for them, which I did, which was what sort of started my, I guess, senior management career. Yeah. Mm. And that was about, well, 2000. Yeah. And that happened. And then how was that role for you? That was where I was really challenged, but in a positive way. Yeah. Vita was someone who always gave me opportunities I never felt I was ready for. Mm -hmm. um, but she always just said, you are. I would go off and, and do them in the sort of full belief that if she had enough faith in me that I could do them, that I could. And so I would just take them on. So I started off as the Deputy General Manager at Modbury Public Hospital, which was a public hospital that we were running on contract for the South Australian Government. I was as the General Manager within about six months when the General Manager moved off interstate. And then I started taking on a sort of wider 
portfolio of hospitals. So I sort of started off managing Modbury for about 18 months or so. And then we brought a few others into the fold, including another public contracted hospital. So I took on responsibility for all of the public contracted hospitals that we had in the group. And then I started um, uh, sort of taking on responsibility for a region. And my first mm. region was Tasmania. So I had Tasmania and South Australia. So I very quickly became a, um, a platinum frequent flyer mm -hmm. with Qantas and then a lifetime gold frequent flyer with Qantas. Nice. <laughs> yes, so I am perfectly happy not to get on a plane ever again. <laughs> and I'm perfectly happy to actually see my state managers off doing all the flying around yeah. and I will just sit here and go home every night <laughs> and watch House Hunters International. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I did uh, did a lot of travel and over that period of time I took on bigger and bigger portfolios, finally ending with the New South Wales Queensland portfolio and then doing um, a bit of work in aged care before mm. there was private equity sell out of the, mm. of the company and I moved on with that management team. Yeah, right. Mm. And then when did I Group come into the picture? How did that come about? Well, I went from HealthScope to managing Wesley as the general manager at Wesley, and I was in that role from 2011 till about 2016. And during that period, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. I was trying to find it, you know, a nice generic word like health episode, but anyway, I was diagnosed with lymphoma, so I spent uh, 2013 having treatment. And I went back to work because my my objective was to really give my son back a normal life. I just wanted everything to go back to normal. Mm. So I'd gone back to work after I finished treatment. But I just felt as though my sort of physical health was, just my fitness was diminishing. And I was writing off everything that I thought I could do. You know, I can't push the supermarket trolley anymore. I can't mop, I can't vacuum. I just started with the things I really didn't like doing. Of course, you know, I was my life was getting smaller and smaller and I thought I've really never tackled my fitness post-treatment. So I actually, um, I want to do that. So I actually resigned from the Wesley and took, oh, the good part of four months off. Mm. And I had known Stuart, um, as everyone in private health had known Stuart um, across the years. And so um, he approached me and just said, you know, what are you thinking about doing? I said, I really just want to do some project work and, you know, just do some part-time work because my major focus at the moment is being able to bench press, not bench press, leg press my own body weight. <laughs> and, you know, run, not run, because I actually can't run because I have neuropathy in my legs, but mm. to walk, you know, at this gradient and at this pace, I said. So that's what I really want to do. And that's how I actually came to come to work for ICON, you know, and the, the opportunity then came up for me to take on the CEO role. Yeah. Going back to when you were diagnosed with lymphoma, was mm. can you talk a little bit about that time in your life? So it was, I was an incredibly healthy person. I had really never been sick. One night I was uh, taking our very old dog out for a walk and I'm walking back in, I'm walking up the stairs and I thought, oh, my chin just went numb. It was really, as you can imagine, a bizarre feeling. Mm. Now, because I was surrounded at work by medical people, I sort of went in the next day and was chat, 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 talk, talk, talk. And I said, oh, my chin's numb. Our medical director said, oh, that's odd. And he said, you know, you really should go and see your GP about that. So I did. I made an appointment that night and I went to see her. And she said, oh, it's probably a virus, something like that. And then she rang me later and she said, oh, look, I think you should um, have an MRI. 
um, she thought I had MS. So the next day she booked me in to have an MRI. One of the advantages of working in a hospital is mm. that it's pretty easy to get access to these things pretty quickly. That was my birthday. I had an MRI and I had the longest MRI ever. Sure, but because they identified that there was something wrong with my bone marrow. Anyway, afterwards I came out and the um, uh, radiologist came over to me and she said, well, look, you know, your brain's fine. She said, but there is a problem with your bone marrow. And she said, so Margaret will want to talk to you about that. So anyway, so I took off from work, off to the GP. And um, Margaret, who's my GP, is, was actually managed, married to Lewis, who was the medical director at work. I'm sitting there in the waiting area and I look up and there's Lewis. And I thought, oh something is really wrong here. Anyway, so they told me together that there was definitely something wrong mm. with my bone marrow, that uh, probably the best I could hope for was that I had a lymphoma. <laughs> and uh, it takes you a little while to get over that. Anyway, mm. then the next uh, Monday, I had a uh, bone marrow biopsy and the results of that came back on the Wednesday morning and it was a lymphoma, fortunately. Imagine that, celebrating having lymphoma. Um, so it was stage 4 B-cell lymphoma, which is a treatable with curative intent type of cancer, so I'm very lucky. But it was stage 4 and it was quite mm. extensively throughout my bone marrow. had a port put in on the Friday, started my treatment on the Monday morning, and I had three cycles of hypersevad, um, after which it was intended that I would have a bone marrow transplant. But despite two attempts to harvest stem cells, we weren't able to because uh, the marrow was so damaged, which was devastating, like just devastating. And at that stage, I really did think to myself, I don't think that I'm intended to have a long life. Mm. I thought that was probably it. John Bashford was my haematologist at the time and he said no. He said I have uh, a lot of um, tools in my kit to treat this disease. We're, we're far from the end of that. I um, had a fourth cycle of hypersevad. I have uh, finished in about, around about probably today, mm. um, six years ago, yeah. was my last treatment. Since that time, because I couldn't have uh, stem cell transplant, mm. I have had two years of Mabthera, then my immunoglobulins, my immune system, just didn't actually ever recover. So I still have IgG every three weeks. Yeah, right. I'd like to... Uh, Ian Irving is now my haematologist. We have a very interesting working patient Working patient relationship. relationship. <laughs> I think I manage it a lot better than he does. <laughs> I did say to him the other day, say to him frequently, and Dr Irving, yeah. who is your favourite patient? <laughs> so I am a chronic haematology patient. I am fatigued a lot of the time because of my sort of immune system yeah. and my lymphocytes are, are quite low. So I do struggle with fatigue and I struggle with anxiety about my the, the impending doom, yes. the fear of, of relapse. And I have a lot of, I have quite a few side effects from treatment, including the neuropathy in my legs and at the base of my mm. spine. I can't digest fats properly, so I have to take Creon when I eat. But probably if I was to say anything, I mean, I've always been a worrier, but the anxiety about, oh, I've just got to stop Googling. It's really what I've got to do. Mm. Step away from the iPad. And yeah. that's probably the one thing that actually gets me down the most. But I still look at it and think, I'm so fortunate know because I could tell you the number of times that I would go in for treatment um, and see a mum there with 
a um, a young man with a, you know usually a sarcoma. Yeah. And I would think to myself, I would not swap places with you, and have your healthy body and have my son be sick mm. or anything in the world. Yeah. Give it to me. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I still think tough I'm, to see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very tough to see. In some ways, it was an enriching experience. Mm because I was shown such incredible kindness and I learnt so much about, I got such amazing support from people um, and I will start crying if I keep going. <laughs> so we'll move on, I we'll move on. Keep going. <laughs> but on those lines and you know, you've mm. been on the other side, so you've been a patient mm. and you've gone to you know, you've gone to our cancer centres and you, you still are a patient, like you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, you've also got your other hat on as an executive of the company. How is that? Oh, it's really funny, actually, when someone new treats me. Yeah. And so someone new started working and they treat me and I never say anything at all. Yeah. And then, you know, they'll go, oh, okay, so where are you going after this? I said, oh, I'm going into work, you know, because I have my IGG at 7 o'clock. I need to work. Oh, where do you work? Oh, actually, I work for Icon. Oh, okay. Oh, where? Which centre you're at? Oh, I work out of Cordelia Street. Oh, what do you do? Um, actually, <laughs> I'm the CEO for Cancer Care. Oh, oh, okay. It's like, oh. And then they run off. Why didn't someone tell me? Oh, no. <laughs> no, they don't. They come back and they go, yeah. oh, that's a big job. Oh. Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so that's actually, that's, that's quite... Um, quite funny I must admit it is it's a great service and I've been going into the Wesley Cancer Care Centre now obviously I think I am up to treatment 130 of IgG yes so I've been going in there a lot and they're really very good you know they are and and obviously I I sort of have a fair understanding of the process and I I know some of the things that can actually go wrong and what's been great at Wesley is we've got a cancer care coordinator started there. Um, it's a new position. I know Kate because Kate used to be a nurse at the Wesley, so I remember her from when I was a, an inpatient as well, and it's lovely chatting to her, but also just hearing her chatting to other people because it is, it's a big centre, and to hear her sort of sit down and, um, and go through and, and assess the patients and work out what she can do to actually help them in ways other than just seeing that treatment delivered is uh is really good yeah you know, we're doing some great things and of course because I've been going so long there are people who have also been going for a really long yeah. time like we're almost it's almost we don't actually really know each other yeah you can just see people who've got it's a very long-term relationship not by choice but it's not an unpleasant one either yeah mm. do you ever when you're having those conversations with patients but mm. you're also the patient do you mm. ever talk to them to say that you know, you actually are the CEO of Icon's Cancer Division? No. No, yeah. No. I'm trying to think if I ever have, but I don't think that I, that I ever do. Because generally, you're talking about other things. Yeah. And one thing um, that's always struck me as being really important, and that is a product of someone being able to go back to the same centre time and time again, mm. is that you start to see more of the person and less of the patient Mm. because you get to know them. Yeah. And so people are there and they're chatting away to the nurses and the nurses are asking them about their family or events or the holidays that they've been on and uh, they're sharing, you know, uh, a lot about themselves. And so they're really very much 
treasuring the, the person that's actually there mm. and that this is, you know, this is a course of treatment and that it'll last a period of time. Ultimately, it is, um, it is going on within a much larger life and you can't lose sight of that life and yeah. just treat the person as a patient. Treat the person, yeah. Mm. yeah. So treat the person. Yeah, Never right. lose sight of the person. Yeah. Mm. So when Stuart gave you the opportunity to work for Icon, mm. was there part of you that was also quite keen to work for a cancer care organisation? To be quite honest, it would be easier to work in a shoe shop mm. because you're not confronted yeah. by... That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. You'd be just confronted every day yeah. by that. Yeah. Having said that, working in a shoe shop would probably drive me bad <laughs> and cost me a lot of money, depending on where I worked, of course. So it's always been important for me to work somewhere where you could make a difference mm. and to be able to achieve something mm. that, you know, was sort of obvious and measurable. Ask anyone. I love to be able to measure things. I love data. And so this gave me an opportunity to work with the company that I knew was a great company. And, you know, we've got really fantastic doctors you know quality of mm. what we do is is wonderful and when I listen to you know to John talk about our research and about CAR T-cells there's obviously at a very personal level yeah. that is so exciting to me that there are you know there are options for for treatment in the future mm. should I relapse I did actually go back and get stem cells 12 months after right. my treatment and uh, and that was a very big day I can I can tell you who the nurses are I still remember every second of the whole thing it's yeah. like you know we we didn't get a lot but we got enough but yeah to go and work somewhere that had uh, this sort of delivering the caliber of services that we are I thought was you know a tremendous opportunity yeah. and uh, and yes yeah, so the organization in itself did appeal mm, yeah. mm. I think it's a very brave move it's, it's very courageous well I was at the yeah. Wesley anyway and so you would walk out of the executive office and you'd walk around the wards and you would hear some terrible stories yeah. and you would see some terrible things and they weren't all cancer related yeah, either yeah. but yet you would meet some incredibly brave people and have an opportunity to see some marvellous things and I never in all the time that I have worked in hospitals I never get past that feeling that when there's a code and you see the code mm, team running yeah. to a code that you know the the adrenaline that feeling of the the really sort of important and critical work that's actually going on yeah. in the hospital. So you really have lived healthcare like your whole career mm. and you know you've really gone through all those different roles and to where you are now. Do you think that the skills you've learned is something you've really learned on the job or was it something that you there were skills that you learned at uni on the job? I've done undergraduate and I've done postgraduate qualifications up to a master's and everything you learn you learn on the job and you learn from the people around you yeah you learn from the people that you actually work with and I think if you're not working with people who you are learning from then you need to establish those other relationships mm. to learn from other professional people outside of of your work environment and some people for various reasons will find themselves in that situation so you need to actually go out and reach out and do it but I've always been fortunate to have been surrounded by people that are I really felt that I was actually learning a lot from. I am an observer of people. I mean, I could sit at the airport for ages and just watch people. I love think, people watching. What's going on there? people watching. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I do think about things a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I'm often sort of analysing things. So to be surrounded by, you know, people that are different to you and have sort of different personalities and different ways of mm. doing things and, you know, and also actually achieving great things is, it's, it's a little 
all very rich and I think, you know, you sort of take it in and you grow yourself. Yeah, it gives you different perspectives. Yeah. And you're constantly learning, yeah. constantly seeing something new, learning yeah. something different, learning something about yourself sometimes. Yeah. Mm. So what would you say are the defining moments in your career so far? I went to work for the private sector. I had gotten an offer from HealthScope and I was working at the Royal Melbourne at the time. And I was 7am on Tuesday morning. We had a meeting where we had all of the heads of the clinical services with the CEO and essentially they would just raise issues that they had. Anyway, I won't go into detail about what the issue actually mm. was, but one of them had gone to the health minister to intervene to get his way. Mm. And I saw an awful example of where politics interfered with good clinical policy and practice to get one person an outcome at the expense of someone else's patients. Yeah. And I thought, I hate this. I don't want to be here. If I can't make a difference and change something like this, I don't want to be here. So I, even though I was a bit reticent about going to work for HealthScope, I accepted their offer and I went in to see the, uh, the general manager of the hospital, of the CEO, and I said, oh, I've resigned. Mm. Going to work, going to work here. And he goes, oh, what are you going to do that for? Because those people won't get you anywhere. And um, <laughs> should stay here. Anyway, he actually came to work for HealthScope about four years later too. <laughs> <laughs> completely denied that comment but anyway yes so yeah so that was probably the most defining moment mm. and I guess the second one was when I was sitting at the Wesley on uh, on that day and uh and John actually called me and he said oh look you know here him you know globulins just not standing up to four weekly treatment I probably should uh drop you to three weekly and I said John would I do better if I had a less stressful job? And he just said, inevitably, yes. Well, well there you go. Is that decision made? <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> I was like, and here you are now. <laughs> what happened? Long line. No, I think stress comes from not being able to actually change your yes. circumstances. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's healthy stress and there's, uh, there's unhealthy stress and, uh, and I don't feel that I suffer from any unhealthy stress. Yeah. Mm. And similarly then, what have been the biggest challenges that you've faced? Oh, I would say that my um, biggest challenges have all come from my lack of confidence in my own abilities. Mm. At any point in time... I have always been supported to take on new challenges and given opportunities. It is, I've all, my first thought has always been, I can't do that. I, I'm an introvert who's taught herself to be extroverted enough to do this job or mm. uh, this type of job. I am where I am because people had faith in me and encouraged me to actually do things, not necessarily because I thought I could do them. And probably at my very old age now, I have actually reached a point where I'm pretty realistic about, you know, when I when I think I'm right and wrong, and yeah. uh, and uh, and being able to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am just mm, to get mm. the job done. That's that's all very good. I'm, I'm sort of very comfortable with all of that uh, at the moment. But probably the one thing that uh, you know has always been present and it has been a limiting factor for me is just mm. not having enough confidence in mm. myself to actually say I could do things. Yeah which has been a common challenge in this podcast yes. with our with yeah. our talent on yeah. the show and lack of confidence. 
there you go. Mm. That's amazing to know because we all cover it up so well. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, I would never think you of all people, Anne, yeah. would have any lack of confidence. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All learning. I know you mentioned, you know, working in a shoe shop before, but mm. in all honesty, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Look, I think that at any point in time along the journey of my career, I could have actually stopped at a lesser role mm. and could have quite happily uh, managed a small HIM service specialised in just doing revenue management mm. and fiddle around with spreadsheets and KPIs for my whole day and not had, you know, a huge amount of responsibility with yeah. it, just that sort of, you know, intensive sort of all data information type role that's probably where I would have actually um, would have actually stopped had I stayed in Warrnambool and stayed at the Commonwealth Bank yeah I'd probably still be there <laughs> <laughs> I would probably still be yeah. there it'd be freezing right now but uh, yeah yes. yeah <laughs> what gave you that drive then to just keep moving up again I the opportunities came up and uh, they were offered to me yeah and someone said to me you can do this. You've mm. got this. And I thought, okay, well, if they think I've got it, then I'll go for it. I would usually find that I was uh, that I was doing it. I guess when I started this job, it was a little bit different because yeah. when I looked at what needed to be done, I thought, okay, well, I can see immediately 10 things that need to be done. I'm pretty sure that if I do those 10 things, that will be successful. So I'll just do the 10 things. And, you know, and I'm pretty sure that at the end of that, uh, that, you know, we'll, we'll come out in a better place. Yeah. So I was, I was pretty comfortable with doing it, and, uh, even though, you know, people will tell you they didn't expect us to get the results that, that we have, and they are pretty awesome. But they're a marvellous group of uh, managers that I actually work with and that we have out in our sites. And many people have said, from our accreditation surveyors to the sort of the Bain consultants that came in, have said what an amazing group of people across the board to be able to take a new set of you know quality standards a new set mm. of KPIs a new way of doing things and just adopt it and just put it into place get it working do what needed to be done and you know in such a short period of time really everyone has has very much just moved up a level and matured into it and matured into a sort of very sort of structured and professional way of actually yeah, yeah, running yeah. our operations and uh, and producing KPIs and data, which is mm. not just for me. It's for Rowan <laughs> and Ross. They're responsible. Big guys. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So who has been the biggest influence in Vita Perry. Yeah. Yeah. No, Vita, Vita, I'm very happy to say, and I still remain friends. Um, she's mm-hmm. obviously pretty much retired now I think she remains on the board of um, of company, which she's got an equity interest. Yeah, without doubt, Vita. Mm. Mm. Yeah. She was. Uh, I learnt so much from Vita, and most of a lot of people who are still stay in contact with a lot of people who I've worked with before, and um, and they would sort of say um, that you know Vita was tough to work for, but she always treated people with respect. Mm. I just found her to just be such a, even now, a wise soul. Yeah. So similarly. What do you think makes a good leader? I actually think someone who is a good leader is very comfortable with who they are. They're quite self-actualised. They're not really looking to gain points by stepping on other people. Mm. And they have a very 
clear vision and can convey to the people that are working for them this incredible sense of, of strength that uh, and confidence in them and say, we're going to do this and you can do this. You know, you know you can do this mm. and we're all going to do it together. We're going to be here for you. This is where we're actually going to end up. So they're not very concise words around um, what makes a good leader. It is, it is someone who I think starts off being very, very comfortable in themselves. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Clear sight, clear vision, yeah. and they're they're in it for the objective. They're not in it for necessarily self promotion. Yeah, yeah. You know, leaders who are all about the, I did this and I did that and I did something else. I have a bit, bit of a rule. We, uh, you can be responsible for the good things. I can be. I will be responsible for the bad things. Mm. <laughs> and we will actually be responsible for everything that actually goes on. So it's uh there is a very much a shared responsibility, yeah, I think, too, when you're managing large mm. groups of people, too. You've actually got to say, okay, well, I'm, I am going to, you know, shoulder the burden of the, the tough stuff, you mm. know, with you if I don't do it all myself mm. anyway. So what's the one piece of advice that you would give another aspiring iconic woman? Same thing every time, and that is that when you can get to a point in your life where you are very happy with who you are and you own everything about yourself from your weaknesses um, and you know and those things which aren't that attractive then you are very resilient and you're able to effectively manage anything that comes your way without it buffering your self-esteem around too much because you're being honest with yourself and with everybody else about who you are And then you can actually judge your opportunities and resolve your problems and face challenges and everything. And the the little person inside of you is Mm. is still there, unharmed, still me inside, Mm. just doing whatever comes along and, you know, enjoying it for, for what it is. And I think that's a really very hard to do. Yeah, it is very hard to do. Yeah, it doesn't come naturally. Oh, it does to some people, I seem to think, but it doesn't come naturally to everybody. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Anne. So we've come to the fun part of the podcast. Good. So we'll go into some quick fire five questions. Um, So what book are you reading at the moment? I have just finished the Shelley Bay Ladies Swimming Circle, and I'm also reading Boy Swallows Universe at the same time as I'm finishing the 10th Logan McRae novel. <laughs> Which, so you're one of those that like juggle multiple books at one time. Oh yes, yeah. Because I might get sick of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, sometimes I do find a book that I just can't put down, mm, but mm. Um, sometimes I'll just juggle a few. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, name the top three iconic women that you'd like to have on a girls' weekend. On a girls' weekend, there must be shopping, mm-hmm. and so Kathy would have to come. Okay, Kathy of Reed. Yes, and there needs to be a bit of mischief. So I think I'd have to take Tracy Fivey. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to talk our way out of our mischief, probably Jenny Hansen. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from the shopping, what else would be involved in this weekend? Well, there'd be food. Yeah. And there'd be wine. Mm-hmm. And there'd be a lot of laughter. Nice. Yes. All right. Um, if you had a spirit animal, what would it be and why? Zebras. I like zebras. I don't know why I like zebras. I just like zebras. You know, they're pretty chilled. They hang out in big packs, you know, together. And uh, they're, you know, they're they're quite family, community oriented. But I just like zebras. And when I laugh, I actually laugh like a zebra. (laughs) 
Not laughing. Are they white with black stripes or are they black with white stripes? Uh, no, I think they're I think they're white with black stripes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Certainly the stuffed ones I have at home seem to be anyway. <laughs> and what's your guilty pleasure? Uh, Diet Coke. Well, Coke Zero actually at the moment. I drink a lot of Coke Or Coke Zero. no sugar because... Yeah, Coke no know. sugar. Yeah, that's true. That's probably the thing that I have that I probably shouldn't have. But I just like the fizziness. And mm. sometimes like today where I just think, I'm really tired this morning, but I'll be better once I've had a Coke. Yeah. All right. And last question. What would your last meal be? It would be a bottle of red wine. <laughs> And it would be. <laughs> is a, that a meal? <laughs> it is. Uh, no, and I, with it, I would probably have a a tub of ice cream, and it would probably be either cookies and cream mm. or a salted caramel, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you know, just depending on what it was, a double dipped cherry ripe. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nothing healthy about that. No. But that, that's <laughs> but a guilty good. pleasure. Yes. <laughs> No, it's last meal. (laughs) Last meal can be a guilty pleasure. That's right. Anywhere particular? With my son and my dogs. Yeah. Oh, and I guess, you know, if you were going to choose where you'd be, you'd be surrounded by people who love you. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, you don't often have a lot of uh, notice of these things. I always say, you know, if there's only 30 minutes, got to get to a bottle shop, got to get a bottle of Magella. I'm going to, uh, yes, uh, race home, sit down, sit on the deck, look at city and the end yeah (laughs) perfect yes i think so yeah oh well thank you so much for talking to me today Anne. it's been a real pleasure and it's it's been a real inspiration really to hear your career and you know your battle with lymphoma as well and how you're dealing with that and also in you know like you said your stressful job (laughs) (laughs) stressless job stressless job here's hoping yeah thank you so much that's a pleasure it's been a pleasure alicia